we were we were in breakout sessions, and actually another lawyer, Lillian Edwards, and I just said, why don't we try to come up with something better than Asimov's laws? Because Asimov's laws, everyone thinks that AI ethics is less so now, but it used to be. Everybody thought that AI ethics was solved by Asimov already, and it's like all you have to do again read past the you know read past the three laws. If you actually read the stories, every single one is about the kinds of things that go wrong with what, what's apparently a really good little rule of ethics. Welcome to Fringe FM the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. Of all sci-fi authors, there's none as revered as Isaac Asimov. In today's episode, we'll discuss Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics and how to rewrite them. Today, we have Joanna Bryson on the program. Joanna is a professor at the Department of Computing in the University of Bath. She works on artificial intelligence, ethics, and collaborative cognition. In 96, she worked for Lego as an AI consultant on Lego Mindstorms. In 2010, she published her most controversial work, Robots Should Be Slaves, and has helped the EPSRC to define the principles of robotics in 2010. She's consulted the Red Cross on autonomous weapons and is a member of the all-party parliamentary group on artificial intelligence. She's focused on standardizing ethical design for AI and autonomous systems. In 2017, she won an Outstanding Achievement Award from Cognition X, and she regularly appears in national media talking about human-robot relationships and the ethics of AI. She has a background in psychology, AI, neuroscience, and this is a fascinating episode. We'll discuss why robots and AI should not resemble people, what Joanna and her team came up with to replace Asimov's laws of robotics, how people confuse consciousness and intelligence, and likely problems this creates, why Joanna's skeptical will ever achieve superintelligence, the big problem with conflicting interests creating filter bubbles, fake news, and overly aggressive Facebook, why robots can't be liable for their actions, how people should think about the ethics of robot design, the ethical dilemmas of AI and robots in society, how psychology, neuroscience, ethics, and AI are emerging, the problems with controlling and governing AI usage, and how bad incentives create bad artificial intelligence. And now, without further ado, I give you Professor Joanna Bryson. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty big on health, longevity, and human optimization. That's why I'm pumped to tell you about our special 10% off offer from Onnit, the brainchild of UFC's Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus for elite performers. They're running a Willy Wonka-style prize giveaway where everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody wins. On every order of Alpha Brain, a super nootropic stack that they sent me. I love it with my morning coffee, and it comes with the potential to win an all-expenses-paid grand prize round trip for two to Onnit's hardcore headquarters in Austin, Texas. $1,000 store credit, $500 cash, and more. Plus, again, every bottle of Alpha Brain comes with a special bonus from the Onnit team. Just visit disruptors.fm alpha to save 10% off alpha brain or anything else from their awesome store again disruptors.fm slash on it if you want hardcore subs to live a high performance life today's episode is brought to you guys by my 15 step guide to scalable series a worthy growth and marketing if you're building a startup aiming for a billion dollar outcome or a solopreneur looking for a sustainable six seven or eight figure business Get my free guide, which you can grab at mattward.io slash free, which walks you through the best, most proven tactics to acquire and retain customers, applicable for freelancers up to Fortune 500. If you want to grab that, plus bonus hacks and tips to build your business and more, visit mattward.io slash free. And if you need help or ever want to grow your business faster, I coach a handful of hardcore winners building businesses I believe in. You can reach out right on the site, mattward.io, for more. 
And now, let's get on with the episode. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Robots should be slaves, and I'm curious, why? Uh, that wasn't a book, it was a book chapter. It was actually edited by York Wilkes, and it was about whether or not we would have AI as companions. And so my chapter was about the companion was entirely the wrong metaphor. It doesn't make sense to think about something you own as being your companion. So the title is Robots Should Be Slaves because this was about the third time I'd written this and the first two uh, papers hadn't gotten much attention. But if you read it, what it's really saying is robots are something you own. So that therefore, since we've all agreed that people shouldn't be slaves and we're going to own the robots, robots should not be people. Now, I don't actually think it's uh, really technically feasible to build a person, but I was saying even in the extreme case technologically, if I was wrong, that we still shouldn't be aspiring to build a person uh, when, when it would be something that we had deliberately built that we would be buying and selling. Would you be worried that we would produce people that were smarter than us that decided to take over? No, 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 no. It's just ethical. I mean, it is wrong to own people. We decided that like two centuries ago, right? I mean, America was the, the last as usual, <laughs> but they, they uh, the, you know, it was basically agreed about two centuries ago that we don't own people. And and we're talking about commercial products here. I, I don't actually usually argue about people's basement hobby projects. But no, artificial intelligence is already smarter than we are. Like in in and you know, not in all the ways. You don't you aren't going to build something that's exactly like a person that's good at exactly all the things that people are good at. But in every little thing that we do, we're getting superhuman capabilities to do that. I mean, even books have superhuman memory. You know, buildings are superhuman tall. It's not something that's a huge threat. It's one of our capacities that we extend ourselves with technology. But the thing that bothers me is that people are so confused about their own identity and what it is to be human and what, why it is that we have ethical obligations to each other, that it's possible for companies and various other individuals to confuse people and to build up a big smokescreen around artificial intelligence because people have watched a bunch of movies and they think that science fiction writers writing about the human experience are actually interpreting robot experience. When does a perceptual schematic become consciousness? When does a difference engine become the search for truth? When does a personality simulation become the bitter moat of a soul? Do you get worried at all that as we start to move further and further towards more intelligence, that we could have possibly the emergence of consciousness? <laughs> no, not even slightly, because I don't think consciousness is a bad thing either. So, you know, I have, when you say the word conscious, there's so many different things you could mean. My, my background is actually psychology. I have two degrees in psychology as well as two degrees in AI. So when I think about psychology, sorry, not psychology, when I think about consciousness, I think about why is it that we have explicit access to some of our memories that I can remember breakfast this morning, but I don't remember where I learned the word tugboat or something. So we have conscious and unconscious memory. Uh, we have explicit and implicit memory. And if you were, you know, reading the papers I was writing last year, you know that, uh, you know, we have implicit biases, which are quite different from our explicit biases. So I think that that's why we're fascinated by consciousness. It's just that we, our conscious minds, want access and control over our bodies, which nature isn't giving us. So nature helps us in some ways cooperate in ways that we don't want to cooperate, like, like we blush when we're embarrassed, things like that. So I think that's why we're obsessed with consciousness. Now, if by conscious what you mean is moral agent, or that means something that's actually responsible for what it does, or moral patient, which means 
something that we're responsible to take care of. Well, then, of course, it's, then it's a big deal. If the robot is something that was responsible, that would be a big deal. But I don't see how it's useful to have the word conscious and moral agent mean the same thing, right? So I'm much more interested in why it is psychologically, as I said, we have access to some of our memories and not other memories, at least speaking access. We behave, but all of our memory is useful to us in terms of forming some part of our behavior, but only some of it we can talk about. So that's a super interesting question of neuroscience. And I've actually written two or three papers about different definitions of consciousness. So like if you mean by conscious you know, that what I just talked about, explicit memory or self-knowledge. A lot of people mean self-knowledge. Well, computers are more self-aware than we are. That's what random access memory means. You can access all the memory. So what? It's not a big deal. It's like a laptop. You can replace it. You can back it up. That doesn't mean that you have more moral obligation towards it. I think a more useful definition of consciousness is the one I was talking about before, that it's the phenomenological experience of creating those memories that we can talk about later. And so the real question is, well, what, what part of our experience is that? And I have a longer, more detailed journal article about, I think it's actually during the part of, of, of learning, of learning new models for action selection, when we slow down and inhibit our action selection in order to update the models, that that's when we have the phenomenological experience of consciousness. So if you need to do that, if you wanted to slow down a robot's action selection so they could update models when it wasn't certain of what it was doing. Hey, Matt here, a quick timeout. To put this in layman terms, what Professor Bryson is saying is more or less the difference between productivity and creativity, flow states versus consciousness. When you get into the zone, you're writing something, you're playing sports, you're not thinking about the physical perception of your body. You're not thinking about yourself at all. You're just focused on the task. That's what she's saying when needing time to update modules. Essentially, if you're constantly going, 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 you never have a feeling of self. You never have a feeling of consciousness because you are constantly in that flow state. But when you come out of that and suddenly look around the world, you realize, oh my God, how the heck did I get here? That's more or less what she's talking about when it comes to robotics. It's slightly different in terms of in terms of the meanings, but the consequences are the same. That said, just because a human being can't really be in flow state and have a sense of body and self, that doesn't necessarily mean that a robot would not be able to. You know, so what? Again, it, that doesn't mean in itself you're obliged to the robot. That you could have obligations because it's the only copy of some really important memory, which is like a, an obligation to culture or society. But that would mean you didn't design it to be properly backed up. That's your fault. And that's the kind of thing people think that, oh, AI has to be like people. It has to be, it has to have the same kinds of problems as we have because it's intelligent. But intelligent is only one of the characteristics of being human. And, you know, again, intelligent like conscious, there's a lot of different words, a lot of different meanings. If by intelligent you mean, moral agent or moral patient, you know, like I said before. But I use intelligence in the ways that artificial intelligence people originally did, if you look back in the 70s, or or also in behavioral ecology. So the people who, who study the evolution of intelligence, why some species have it more than others. So all I mean by intelligence is the ability to transform perception into action. So to be able to uh, choose your actions to respond to opportunities or, or, or other kinds of problems in the environment. I guess when I talk about consciousness, and I think when a lot of people talk about it, it is the feeling of being you, the observer that is something that you could think about someone else experiencing. So there's a certain threshold where we assume a fruit fly isn't conscious because it doesn't really have uh, an experience of itself. But once you start to have that experience of self, you can have pain, you can have loss, you can have a lot of different things where 
I mean, in the past, people believed that different types of people were not conscious or were inferior. So they were willing to enslave them. So that was my moral question is, how do ethics play into that from a from an AI research and ethics perspective? No, I, I think you're wrong. I don't think anyone ever thought other people weren't conscious. I, they, they did think it was okay to enslave them. But that's, again, I think you're confounding two different terms there. So they, they may have thought that, that people... Um, you know, that, that like women, for example, didn't have souls. And so therefore it didn't matter what you did with a woman. Right. And, um, but I don't think that they thought that they weren't aware or didn't feel pain. There is this stuff about Descartes thinking that dogs, I don't even know if it was Descartes himself, but the people at his parties thinking that dogs only emulated pain. And so they would light the dogs on fire and say, isn't it interesting that it emulates pain? And, uh, that's actually why, why, uh, Kant, you know, there, there's this, I think one of the better arguments for why you might want to treat, uh, robots more human-like is Kant's argument that he sort of said, well, I'm not really sure what, how God, so basically at this point, it was believed that you had moral, something had moral status if God gave it to it. So I don't know how God feels about dogs, but I've observed that the people who kick dogs are also more likely to kick people. And so therefore, you shouldn't kick something that reminds you of a person because that makes you a worse person. And so by that argument, people say, therefore, we need to treat robots well. But actually, the British have a, a, a national sort of soft policy document called the Principles of Robotics that takes that argument and goes the other direction. Because you don't want people to start treating other people like robots, therefore, you need to make it really clear that robots are not people. And so there's, there's only five principles, but the fourth one is that the machine nature has to be transparent. And so that's why when we have something like the new Google you know, speech synthesis device... <laughs> Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. That just sets up all kinds of flags. How can it be a good thing? In what way is it useful or necessary to have something that sounds like a person when it's not a person? We have 8 billion people. We don't need a machine to make a voice like a person. Now, now one of the arguments is, oh, but it's easier if you have that interface. It's easier to understand it. But, you know, no, it's perfectly easy to understand robot voices, right? You know, ungendered, deliberately made, again, by science fiction to be the robot voice. We, we understand that fine. So I think it's, uh, it's, an, it's attractive because, unfortunately, people do like dominating other people. That's why there was slavery for so long. That's why people believed that women weren't people or whatever, was because people do enjoy that, uh, that sense of ownership. And, but it, the problem is that, first of all, there, it, it, it isn't preparing you for learning how to, to deal with other humans as equals and, and for, to form good relationships and good uh, collaborations, you know, businesses, all those things involve learning how to really deal with true equals, not people you just own. But secondly, it, it, the, there's so many people that can be exploited, even at an unconscious level. I mean, not the people that are doing the exploiting are presumably choosing to do that. But the people who are being exploited or manipulated don't necessarily notice that they're being manipulated. Of course, this has been a complaint about advertising and things for a long time. And But that's sort of one of my points. Artificial intelligence is just an artifact. 
It's something we build, and, and it's going to have all the same kinds of problems as ordinary artifacts. Hey, do you like Fringe FM? What about Amazon? Do you want a free $50 Amazon gift card? We're doing a review raffle giveaway now through the end of this month. Anyone who goes to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and leaves a review for Fringe FM, ideally a good review, but if you don't like the show, that's acceptable as well. Leaves a review. We want to encourage reviews because reviews help us rank higher, a big difference, and to do that, we need to reach people. So if you go to fringe.fm slash iTunes, you'll be able to open up in the iTunes app, either on your computer or on your phone, and leave a review. We'll be randomly selecting a winner over the course of the next month. We'll have all of our entries come in, and then we'll announce it on the show. If that's you, you reach out to us with some form of proof, and we'll send you a free Amazon $50 gift card to use on whatever you want. And yes, we know we are bribing you with an Amazon gift card, but the reviews are incredibly important for us, and the science shows that rewards make action happen. So if you want to enter the contest, just go to fringe.fm slash iTunes and leave a review. Make sure that you take a screenshot, and then if you end up winning, you will get that free $50 Amazon gift card. And now we'll jump back to the episode. What pulls you into this field of, I mean, these fields of research? They overlap, and they're not the same, but in very much are similar. So how did you get into this? Well, I mean, like I said, my first degree was actually psychology. I was really very interested in animal intelligence and why it was different from human intelligence. And then uh, I got interested in things like, well, as I learned how the brain works. I mean, one of the things that was amazing was just finding out about the circuit that allows you to uh, saccade, that allows you your eyes to flip around the room and, and, and to follow motion. It was a very simple circuit. So when it was explained to me as an undergraduate, I suddenly realized there was parts of the brain that were completely algorithmic. I probably didn't even know the word algorithmic then, but I could see that it was just automatic. And so I thought, well, wait a minute, this is human behavior and it's automatic. Well, then where does you know, moral obligation come in and all these other things? It's just, it was fascinating to me. So I got very interested in neuroscience. I wanted to understand why were there so many different architectures in the brain? Why isn't there just one best way to learn? And now I've learned that. I did a PhD in computer science and I learned that uh, there, it's combinatorics. It turns out that it's intractable to learn everything. And so nature has spent a very long time finding the best way to represent different kinds of information that you use for different purposes. And now we're going through that same process with machine learning, learning different kinds of representations and algorithms and things that work best for different kinds of processes and problems. And we're getting pretty good at sort of uploading all the stuff that um, nature and human culture have already figured out so that we are able to even expand, but also to replicate quite a lot of what, what humans are able to do. Anyway, so I, so basically, that's just blue, cut, blue sky scientific interest. I was just, I was just interested. But specifically about AI ethics, the reason I got involved with it initially was because I just noticed when I was working on a humanoid robot that people were crazy. You know, they'd walk up and say, oh, it would be unethical to unplug that. And it wasn't plugged in. It didn't work. And uh, there were other robots that did work. This was the, uh, the, the robot lab. It was Rod Brooks' lab up on the ninth floor of the AI lab at MIT. And there were loads of working robots. I mean, they were hardly ever turned on because they're hard to keep running. But there are lots of other robots that actually did work. And then I was working on the only robot that had never worked at that point. And, and uh, people thought it, they were ethically obliged to it just because it was a sculpture shaped like a person. It was a bunch of motors. It turned out it wasn't even properly earth. Uh, sorry, grounded in American English. So, so that was why it didn't work. Anyway, so then I realized there was something strange going on, and I, I, I wrote those first two papers I told you about, and then the third paper about slaves. So then I, it was about, I don't know, 2007 when that paper came out, and right around then, Ron Arkin uh, from Georgia Tech got a bunch of money from the second George Bush to work on ethical battlefield robots. And because of my experience of people over-identifying with AI and thinking that robots were really people, 
I and also because of the grave, which had been happening in the previous few years. I just suddenly all the warning bells and flags went off that they're going to start blaming the robots like they were they were blaming those privates who did terrible things and absolutely needed to be punished. But how did these undertrained you know uh, privates get into the situation where they could do this terrible things that you know we weren't examining the hierarchy and I was afraid the same thing was going to be done with robots they were going to be used as scapegoats when they were completely programmable right it wasn't like the robot made a bad choice the robot is just a programmed thing it's the extension of somebody else's decision I'm a joker why did you join my beloved cult sir to kill sir so you're a killer sir yes sir let me see your war face sir you got a war face ah that's a war face. Now let me see your war face. Ah! Bullshit. You didn't convince me. Let me see your real war face. Ah! You don't scare me. Work on it. Sir, yes, sir. So that was why I, I got, I really started ramping up and writing more papers for a few years uh, until, until President Obama got elected. But then people started calling me in to talk about, you know, AI ethics. I, I was on that project. I told you about the, uh, the principles of robotics. I was one of the people that, that said, hey, let's write this. Because some British research councils had gotten a whole lot of people together to talk about AI ethics, and that was sort of what we came up with as a deliverable. But so after that, I was suddenly now a policy expert because it wasn't, there aren't that many people who either write papers about AI ethics or have done anything in policy. And further, I actually do do AI, and also I do actually do psychology, and I have a liberal arts background. So people start, when, when people started panicking about AI ethics two years later, I think that was mostly about jobs and the economy and, and, you know, a few people worrying about Skynet or whatever. Then they would call in everybody they could find into the room. And the thing is that what I really study, what, going back to what I was actually interested in, is, um, is, is currently uh, human cooperative behavior. And that came out of this whole thing about why are humans different from animals? One of the things we do is share information like I'm doing now. You're not paying me. I'm not paying you. Why are we doing this? Who knows? Right. But we're doing it. And that's what humans do all the time. We construct all these public goods and and uh, and and give them away. And then we wind up being the most powerful species on the planet. So I had been studying that. And so as a consequence, when people call you in a room and say, what happens if you have more intelligence? What happens if you have more communication? Well, I actually knew the theoretical biology behind that. So I was more able to give some of those answers. And then just looking around, you can see I actually wrote a paper in 2014 that came out in 2015 about my concerns about um, elections being manipulated, among other things, about in general, about the, the way that we were changing, reducing individual liberty and operating more as groups. But I specifically talked not about the Cambridge Analytica stuff. I actually had seen that PNAS paper that came out about Facebook likes. But what I was actually more afraid of was some work that Microsoft was doing with some of these guys like uh, Gelman and you know people at MIT and NYU and whatever using the Connect. So they were able to figure out how you were going to vote and also if you're going to get divorced and things like that because people had this you know these uh, computer game consoles in their room. So that was the thing that freaked me out and I wrote about that. But anyway, you can you can read it again. It's another book chapter. And so I think that's why I mean right now I have some very cool science that I'm dying to get done. Um, back to some of that, really, the fundamental. I think I've solved some pretty interesting questions in public goods investment. But right now, the main science that I'm working on is instead uh, political polarization and and why that's uh, correlated with uh, inequality, because that seems like a pressing problem. And even on top of that, rather than doing that, which I even today, I would be, I'll be doing that after we get off the phone here. But the AI ethics stuff, people are calling me in and asking me about it. And I think we need to get a better, more informed understanding of what's really going on with technology out to policymakers, out to voters, you know, out to people in the tech industry. We need to uh, communicate these things. And I think it's just essential. I feel like, you know, I feel like we're in a situation quite similar to uh, what happened 
in the early 20th century. And, and it's nice that there's no open warfare with bombs dropping and stuff. But, but we are in a very conflicted situation right now, and people need to make an effort. I want to jump into that in a sec, but first I want to backpedal a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I we went over a lot about, of material. You asked. <laughs> uh, oh, no worries. No worries. That's uh, that's how it works. Yeah. We get the good interesting stuff. So you were talking about the the panel that – not the panel that you were on, the the report that you guys put together on the basic, – basically like Isimov's uh, rules of robotics. But you had different terms and I imagine different laws. I'm curious what you guys came up with and if you could share some of that. Oh, yeah, sure. So, yeah, actually that was quite funny. So as I said, the there were uh, – I don't know. There was a lot of people. I can't remember how many, like maybe 30, 40 people. It was brought together by the the Engineering Research Council and the Arts Research Council. But there were also people there from the government and from the military and from you know industry and a lot from academia. And so we're all in a room and we've all been put in a room. And there's like, and we're, in fact, we're staying there for multiple days in this place called New Forest, which is the one that, that Henry VIII had to plant. So that's really new. Um, and so we're all sitting there and we're going through these exercises and learning this stuff and getting a little bit of tra- uh, training to be on radio and things like that. But basically there was no deliverable. And so we were, we're in breakout sessions and actually another lawyer, uh, Lillian Edwards and I just said, why don't we try to come up with something better than Asimov's laws? Because Asimov's laws, everyone thinks that AI ethics is less so now, but it used to be. Everybody thought that AI ethics was solved by Asimov already. And it's like, all you have to do, again, read past the, you know, read past the three laws. If you actually read the stories, every single one is about the kinds of things that go wrong with what, what's apparently a really good little rule of ethics. The first law is as follows. A robot may not harm a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey orders given it by qualified personnel unless those orders violate rule number one. In other words, a robot can't be ordered to kill a human being. Uh, rule number three, a robot must protect its own existence, after all, it's an expensive piece of equipment, uh, unless that violates rules one or two. A robot must cheerfully go into self-destruction if it is in order to follow an order or to save a human life. Also, the other thing, problem with the Asimov's laws was they were based on something that's computationally intractable. It's impossible to be able to project all these things that those robots were supposedly projecting about what the consequences of all their actions would be. We wrote the first three. There's five principles, like I mentioned. So the first three were basically revisions of Asimov's laws around the fact that the robot itself is not the responsible agent. There's no way to hold a robot responsible under a human system of law because all the things that we use in law are things that work really good at, you know, punishing animals, right? So if you do the things like, you know, take away take away your assets or lock you up in a cage or things like that, no animal is going to be happy about that, right? But there's, you can't, when you already have that as a target, I mean, you could build a robot that would say, don't take my money, but it isn't going to be the kind of loss of status and systemic aversion like, like an animal would have to pain or to isolation and things like that. So anyway, so we rewrote the, in, you know, instead of, <laughs> oh, this is a long story, I don't know how much of you, you want. But anyway, the first three uh, principles are basically Asimov's laws, but making it clear that the responsibility is held by the manufacturer of the robot that the manufacturer is the one that's responsible for making sure that they aren't going to injure or kill people or that um, that they're safe products, right? So rather than taking care of itself, it's about the being a safe and secure product and protecting the privacy of uh, other people around it, things like that. But then I wasn't content to stop at three. I really thought that we hadn't communicated adequately the status to the user. And so that's why the fourth one 
I mean, it's not like it was my terminology. This was just the first little breakout session. But the fourth one was, was my concern about the moral, I mean, the, the, aware, the obviousness that the robot was a robot and how it worked and, and to know that. And then the fifth one is that it should be clear who owns the robot. So, and I think technically it's that the, the ownership should be attributed. But that's like how a car works, that there's, first of all, there's license plates, but secondly, there's a serial number and you know whose uh, car it is. Now, people thought that would never happen with robots because they're so much less expensive than cars, but it's happening. It's happening with drones. They're, they're not expensive, but people have realized you've got to know whose drone it is, which is, of course, a problem with uh, 3D printers and stuff, but it's a problem we're going to have to get on top of. Anyway, so... That we brought this back from our breakout session to the rest of the group and everybody loved it. So we spent the next day and that's why I'm saying, you know, like, it's not like I was the author because you had like 60 people then. I don't, I don't remember how many people were there at that point, but working on coming to a consensus on, on these rules. And then afterwards, for, for weeks afterwards, we built up the documents that are now on the web page. The EPSRC has, has these on their web pages, so you can, you can Google and find them pretty quickly. It's really interesting how when you get smart people together that are motivated that they come out with important things like this. How would you, that's part of the purpose of Fringe FM is to get, to get awesome people like you on, to create some of that, that, uh, what's the word, the spontaneity that happens. How would you encourage that, not just for government, but overall as a society, ways that we can better look, not just to ethical considerations, but to big problems and solving them collaboratively? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I have no idea. I've got to say with the AI it's really, really, to me, been incredibly interesting that how quickly the conversation has really improved, at least in uh, government circles. I really started getting called in to talk to governments in, like, I don't know, 2015 a little bit, you know, 2016. And then 2017, everybody had learned so much. I feel like we are getting really good at communicating effectively and pulling our resources and stuff. But that's happening in small, relatively select groups. People, I, I, I don't want to diss any particular government, but the British are uh, famous for, I mean, you know, the envy of a lot of countries that they have really, they have this thing called the Royal Society that, that really helps them get access to scientists and they have all this great advice and everything. But then sometimes at the last minute when they're legislating, the parliament says, okay, we, ha- we know what we ought to do for all these reasons, but we have to do this because politics, you know, we need to stay elected or whatever. And so people get frustrated about that sometimes. But by and large, the information is getting communicated and understood pretty well by a range of people you don't even know are there. And this is one of the problems. We don't have a very good understanding of government. We see these incredibly small handful of like elected officials, and we don't understand how all the other pieces are held accountable, even though the government is much larger than that, and it has to be to do all the important things it does. It's still accountable through those responsible individuals, which is, again, going back to AI and, and responsibilities there. That's the same thing we're trying to say, that you can have, you need to have some core humans that, that have that are the ones who have the say over what happens be the ones that are holding the bag if something goes wrong because that's basically the way our justice system works We're, we know how to punish humans if if i mean even with uh what do you call them shell company even with a shell company the whole point of that is that the people who have control over the company are not the same as the people who get punished when the company goes bankrupt right so you have things that are literally set up to go bankrupt to keep somebody else off the hook and to kind of create obfuscation and so that's one of the things i've been working really hard on just the last couple of years is trying to make sure that people don't use ai for that same purpose it's kind of similar to the thing i said earlier about abigrabe but anyway back to the idea about creating cons- consensus. So this, what I've been describing has been the stuff that's been happening among, you know, well-educated people that are used to governing and all that kind of stuff. And I don't mean well-educated going to the best places. I mean, people who really take the time to learn and pay attention. I don't know if they have what their educational background is. But, you know, people who really, really care and, and, and have been able to promote to the point where they get to go to interesting meetings, right? The thing about keeping the overall 
conversation going straight is uh, it's a big challenge that everyone is trying to deal with now. And I think, yeah, that's, that's an open area of research where we're all trying to understand. Nobody understands, you know, why some things go viral and other things don't. You can find some characteristics of that. And like I said, I'm working right now on political polarization. And this is like, it's not even submitted. So I can't even say I have a, a, a theory of this at this point, but we're trying to come up with hypotheses about why it is that some of the time identity politics, that basically your beliefs become more of a flag about who you are than stuff you can use to get work done in the world, right? So in a way, yeah, you said before all my stuff is connected. This is, again, going back to what is cognition for and, and how do humans use it differently from other animals. What I think one of the really big things we got when we got language was this ability to create new groups really quickly so we could really take care of take advantage of opportunities by getting the right size group together. And I don't think other species, well, there's a few examples of that, but not quite as quickly and not quite as much on different levels. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. We're organized around the story. That's that's the overarching power of humanity is to organize around the story. And yet it can also be the overriding downfall, which we're we're seeing in some ways. How to is there a way to get around? Well, I don't think it's just one story. I think I mean that this you know, Orwell talked about double think, but we all have multiple identities, right? And so we all have these different narratives. And it's quite funny that after an election you have a, quite a lot more people remembering having voted for whoever won than did vote for that person. I don't know if that happens with these high polar, polarization ones, but that was like a stat that was true kicking around the 70s and 80s. And the, and the theory is basically that some proportion of people walked into the voting booth of two minds and then literally just remembered the one that made them to be a winner. <laughs> when they, they didn't remember exactly what they did, but they remembered they were thinking about voting for the guy who won. And so therefore, they, they remembered having voted for them. So, uh, so the idea is that we have multiple identities and we don't even realize how quickly we can flip between them. And that might be sort of one of the core things that we do. So it isn't only, you know, narratives are incredibly powerful, but the point is we all know multiple narratives and we can flip between them. There's some amazing study about implicit uh, stuff being done about implicit bias, where if you read a biography by someone from a really different background from you, you don't have any empathy for them and uh, you're less likely to uh, invite them to an interview if you're, if you're looking for jobs. I mean, if you're looking for CVs to, of people to invite to an interview. However, if you hear the person reading their biography, then you have more empathy for them and, and the race problem goes away. But that's only true if they have emotional expression. So if you're, if you're autistic or something, you may have more trouble getting people to identify with your, your life story when you tell it if your affect is too flat. I mean, you know, this stuff is fascinating, um, but also right now really important. Incredibly important. And at least in the past, evolutionarily important towards survival. But today, in a lot of ways, we're evolving beyond evolution to the point where evolution becomes a problem or a hindrance. How do we deal with that? <laughs> I, I just want to agree with that. I mean, there's, you know, I like uh, uh, you, some of the stuff you said before with Ray Chalmers, and I'm going to get very done it and talk about, you know, the Darwinian uh, evolution is, is the universal asset, right? It's, it is a good way to understand also how culture changes. So first of all, biological um, evolution is not has not slowed down. It's probably, if anything, accelerated um, because the smarter you get, this is something called the Baldwin effect. Um, the more information you get, um, the more flexibility you have, the more information you get about your genome, and so you can actually get quite rapid um, um, changes. But but um, well, that's actually very complicated. It can also be that if you're very very flexible, you don't need to change your genome, and that's what people are assuming is happening. But it's not what seems to be happening when we look. Um, but anyway, having said that, what, 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 what changes a lot faster is culture. And again, we aren't figuring everything out. We can't. We don't have the computational uh, capacity, the time or the energy to, to, um, to understand everything we do. Instead, we pick up good tricks very quickly when we see other people do them, and a lot of times implicitly. 
And so that uh, becomes something like evolution. It's, it's um, cultural evolution, which, you know, that's, that's when people talk about memes. That's sort of, that's sort of, you know, depending on what they mean, that's sort of what memes are. So no, I wouldn't say that, that we've moved beyond evolution. I think, I think what we do is that we accelerate it because instead of having random, uh, random choice, we have, um, you know, intelligent operations that are creating the innovations or that, that are doing the selection. Um, so, so I think that that's part of the reason that change is accelerating. But one of the things you see in biological uh, evolution as well is that you see that there's times when you're under stress, when you uh, have change accelerating, you get more variation, so you can accelerate the rate of change. And there's times when you seem to have come across something that's winning, you're sort of near the apex, and then you reduce the variation, you tend to sort of uh, uh, consolidate onto, onto one solution. So I, what I'm hoping is that we can find ways to, um, even though that we're going to become, keep becoming more agile since we have all this computational power, that we'll also find means to protect individual variation. What I worry about, what I fear is, of course, like quite a number of people, is autocracy. That if you don't conform, then you get eliminated. And we've seen that happen a lot in the last couple hundred years, that um, when an autocracy comes in, they eliminate all the free thinkers or even just the smart people that they consider are, are possible threats. Some people even say that about the tech industry, that they go out and buy every young company as soon as it looks like it might be interesting. They just get the people in-house so that they couldn't be competitors, which is better than getting shot, of course. But anyway, <laughs> the point is that you might reduce uh, innovation by, by doing those kinds of processes. Mama and Papa were laying in bed. Mama and Papa were laying in bed. Mama rolled over and this is what she said. Mama rolled over and this is what she said. I give me some. I give me some. I give me some. I give me some. PT. PT. Good for you. Good for you. Good for me. Good for me. Boom good. Boom good. Up in the morning to the rising sun. So I, I think it's important that we find ways, and that these have to be laws, right? This isn't something, we're not going to find, you know, some perfect encryption, well, maybe, but more likely not, just like we don't have, there's no way to entirely defend your home. You know, you're, probably your neighbors could break into your house. Certainly the police and the armies could, right? You know, squirrels break into my house. It's, well, groundhogs. And what are they called? Gophers. Gophers. This gopher thing. Anyway, those things are in my, my basement. I don't know what to do, right? But the, 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 basically, if any human is in my house, I could go to the police. Even though I know humans can get in, I don't expect them to. And I think we have to be the same way with our, with our privacy, that everyone needs to recognize that we need free thought that we have to defend the capacity of people to, to organize, to talk about politics. And I mean, these things are being banned. They're being banned. You know, if you have more than two or three people talking about politics, you can go to jail. You know, the rumor has that, that that's happening in China, that's happening in, in Russia, it's happening in Hungary, which is part of the EU. They're, so the, they're, this is a big threat right now. I remember the first time that so I used, you know, Facebook was a thing, whatever, a long time ago. Bath was one of the first universities to really, we, we picked it up because we had a human computer interface group that wanted to do experiments on it. So we all got accounts right early when it was first coming out. So I was playing around on Facebook, but then, and then this new thing, Twitter came around and, and only my most geekiest friends had heard of it. So I, I actually felt, even though there was no privacy, that it was actually sort of more private than Facebook. And then all of a sudden, Google searches started turning up your Twitter page. And I just thought, you know, you can tell who I am and what I'm like, what kind of trouble I'm likely to be by what I've said here. Do I shut up? Do I, you know, do I lock the account? What do I do? And I thought, well, I guess I better stay politically engaged because um, I don't want to live in that world where I can't, you know, use this kind of a tool to communicate. So therefore, I need to figure out how to make sure that people like me are safe. 
Houston, we have a problem. Unfortunately, as we were recording this, they had a fire alarm go off at Princeton University where Joanna was recording. They had to be evacuated and we were not able to continue the interview. Since we weren't able to line up a follow-up, thought it could be good to read the last bit of Joanna's paper on robots should be slaves and read the conclusions, what she's drawn. Thought this could be very interesting and thought-provoking for folks. So, conclusion. Why do people want robots to be peers? Is it perhaps because they want a peer that'll never argue or at least never be smug when it wins? A fairy godparent smarter than themselves that they can nevertheless ultimately boss around and pen up like a pet dog? If so, such narcissism is probably mostly harmless and perhaps a good thing for the dogs. But in a liberal democracy, we tend to think of every citizen's life and mind as a valuable resource. Wasting that resource socializing with artifacts would be a great loss. Robots should be rather viewed as tools we use to extend our own abilities and to accelerate progress on our own goals. An autonomous robot definitionally incorporates its own internal motivation structure and decision mechanisms. But we choose those motivations and design the decision-making system. All their goals are derived by us. I've argued here that robots are often overly personified. First, this is because of our desire to have power of creating life. Second, this is because we're not certain what it means to be human. So currently, we offer the term to anything that senses, acts, remembers, and speaks. Given the errors in dehumanization that have been broadly made in the recent past, in fact sometimes present, the desire to avoid such mistakes is laudable. Yet ironically, extending the title human to something which is not only serves to devalue the real humanity. The objective of this chapter has been to persuade roboticists and robotophiles now while this industry is in its early stage, that calling a robot a moral agent is not only false, but an abrogation of our own responsibility. Abrogation means giving away of responsibility or failure of responsibility. I've also demonstrated that these problems are already in our society. In the current research funding for ethical battlefield robots and the commercial exploitation of human empathy for artificial characters, my conclusion is that we're obliged not to robots, but to our society. We're obliged to educate consumers and producers alike to the real obligations with respect to robotics. And that is the end of the paper. I think that is something we can leave ourselves with because as we do move towards a world of increasing automation, robotics, and interactions with everyday life, there are going to be these type of questions coming up. It is very, very important for us, especially according to Professor Bryson, to separate ourselves as a species and as a other from robotics. Otherwise, we will fall into the trap and potentially devalue humanity further. Hopefully this has been an interesting ending to the episode. Unfortunately, we weren't able to fully record that with Professor Bryson. But if you're interested in learning more about Professor Bryson, you can visit fringe.fm to find links to all of her work. She's got some very interesting things out on the ethics of AI. And of course, she is one of the foremost experts on this, having both the AI and the psychology background. Reach out to her if you have something of interest. And until next time, thank you for listening. Sorry about the unconventional ending. And we will come back to you guys soon. Cheers. Hey, hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM to support our mission? Yes, you heard that right, tax-deductible. You can support us in the work we do and all the good that we're trying to accomplish in the world, or you can save your tax dollars for the tax man. It's your choice. We like to think we're a bit more efficient and important for the world and hope you do too. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit that's focused on advancing science worldwide. This means that you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation. All of these would greatly impact the level of good we're able to do in the world and the quality of show we're able to produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. And really, if you care about our mission in the world and the work that we're doing, please consider supporting our efforts. You are quite literally deciding whether or not we continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, it's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. 
Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.